This episode is sponsored by our friends at Dukan. Launch your online store in 30 seconds. No coding or design skills required. Whether you are a small business trying to go online, a teacher looking to set up digital presence, or you just want to sell a goat, Dukan is your one-stop solution. At the start of the pandemic, when small businesses were struggling, Dukan helped over a million merchants move from offline to online. Founder of Dukan is also a billion moonshots alumni. He shared his story of making twenty-five thousand dollars per month in college to now building a hundred million dollar startup. So start your fourteen-day free trial now at mydukan.io. For people who don't know, you started options trading at sixteen. Sold cars in college. That was super cool. Blew up on TikTok and Twitter with your fintech content, and right now you have close to one thirty thousand followers. Uh, like again, once again, I said I said this earlier that there are so many fintech followers out there who talk about how to invest, stuff like that, like what platforms to invest on. But I thought you were doing something super cool where you were diving into the Fed. What is the Fed doing? What are the monetary policies? Uh, what's the GDP looking like? Oil interest rates, so you were doing some really hardcore stuff. So that was super cool. Now, before we dive into all that, let's talk about options trading at sixteen. How did that happen? Uh, yeah, no, sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so yeah, my dad was—he traded a little bit, um, a lot of it, and it was like something that I saw him doing, something that I didn't really understand, um, and I really wanted to understand it a little bit better. So I tried it out and was really bad at it. Like I lost money, but it was a really good challenge and definitely like a good way to get your feet wet um, in the finance space. So I just kept on swinging, did really bad. I don't recommend that people get their feet that wet <laughs> if they're trying right. to start in finance. But it taught me a lot of good lessons about what works and what doesn't. So definitely. So your dad was sort of your role model, or he was sort of guiding you that hey, do this options trading. Was he making money? Like how much money was he making? Uh yeah, so he definitely was a little hands off with like encouraging me to do X, Y, or Z. But it was more just like he gave me the space to like explore that interest. Um, there's a group called Tasty Trade that um hmm. has a lot of educational content. So I got certified through them and would watch their videos religiously. Like uh, that was my <laughs> social media because I, when I was when I was in high school, which made me super cool to be around. Um, I was options and and especially in college, like I was just super into the markets and just thought it was like super fascinating. Uh, the mechanics behind it because it's one thing to invest in a stock. But the options universe is just like this whole math physics land that almost doesn't make sense until it does make sense. So definitely. So for people who don't know, can you actually explain what options trading is? Uh, yeah, sure. So I don't do it anymore. Um, but basically, options are like derivatives of a stock. So you can use there's calls and puts. So calls you know, you would make a bet that a stock is going to go up in price. Puts you'd make a bet that a stock is going to go down in price. And you can combine those in different ways to express different strategies. So there's things called iron condors where you can put calls and puts together, um, or just calls and just puts in order to express a more neutral strategy. So it's just a way for you to. Express strategies on a stock while hedging some risk, and then also capturing things like volatility, um, capturing things like gamma, time premium, all of those different things that you can't really capture with just pure buy and hold. So it's a way for you to benefit from the movement in the market. That a way that um, you know just holding twenty stocks in a portfolio doesn't quite allow for. Right, and how much did you lose or make whatever at the end of that stint? Yeah, so I mean, I. 
Uh, I don't know exact numbers, but <laughs> I definitely was in the red. And it was mostly because <laughs> I got a little bit too confident, which is what people usually do with that kind of stuff. I think I was playing around with maybe like a thousand dollars because I wasn't okay. in high school and I had like no money. So it wasn't like I completely wiped myself out at the time. I was completely wiped out, but that was okay. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just a experimentation and luckily you know it was my money um so it wasn't like given to me like my parents or anything like that uh, okay. so it was just a, a lesson learned right you know? definitely did you see your friends doing it because i did like you know these kind of things happen when you have a group of people that are also doing did you have some friends who were doing uh, no, options so, or yeah i grew up in kentucky and the finance industry is not super prominent there. Um, so mm. it definitely wasn't common for my friends to do this. I would tell them all about it. <laughs> and most of the time they'd be like, please go away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were, they were all supportive and they were just like, there she goes. You know, um, I had a blog on it in college and uh, there one of my friends, because I would never stop talking about my blog, they printed out QR codes of my blog and hung them all around campus. <laughs> so they were like, this is going to be my contribution. So one day maybe you, you stop talking about this all the time so. wow and that those blogs were also about fintech uh yeah so i don't specialize in fintech that blog was on options trading it was on hmm. like the economy yeah so it's called skinlin on stocks um okay. so i would talk about my trading strategies and i would talk about like gold and i would talk about the fed um in college yeah so that was kind of like my start in the content creator universe you yeah. That's crazy. And now in university, I just read about this. So you used to sell cars. So that's crazy. Like uh, cars. And I think I read that you sold over 1 million products. Like when you say products, are these all cars or are these like other accessories and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So over a million dollars in sales uh, during the time that I did sell cars. Uh, and yeah, I was the top salesperson at my little store, which was really cool. Um and basically what happened there is I thought it was a finance internship and I hmm. got there and it was not a finance internship, uh, <laughs> sales internship. So I, they were like, go sell some cars. And, um, I did. And most of the time it was just me going up to people and being like, do you want a car? Um, and then just helping them through the financing process. It was definitely one of the most difficult jobs that I've ever had mm. just in terms of like how people treat you and how like just how you have to engage with people during that time um so it, it definitely taught me like what I didn't want to do after I graduated which was super helpful yeah right <laughs> so. right like do you have a crazy story over there with car sales like any negotiation super hard or negotiation negotiating customer who was like hey bring this down bring this price down yeah, I mean, this wasn't like a super hard story, but there was a college student that was selling or trying to get a minivan, right? So she could go to college. Um, and that was, they wanted a way lower price than what my manager was willing to give. And it was so difficult because like, this was a person who was my age and I know how it's like to be 19 years old and like trying to get a car. Um, and so, it, you know, you just really want to help people or at least I did. And it, you know, that, that was like really tough. And then one time I was trying to sell Land Rover, um, one of those like fancy vehicles. And that nice. was just a crazy financing thing because they didn't want to put any money down. And if you don't put money down on the car, your monthly payment is going to be really high um in hmm. trying to explain that to them and be like hey your monthly payment's not going to be insane if you like just put a couple of dollars down please uh they, the people want yeah and then there is like we would put people on 84 month financing plans which is just brutal um and so it's just kind of like that stuff where 
it definitely bleeds into how I think about my work now and like the lessons I learned during that time. Yeah. Wow. What a top lessons learned, top two learnings from this entire car sales experience. Yeah. Uh, I've written about it before, but I think like the biggest thing is just, uh, um, everybody has an incentive, right? Like car people hmm. have an incentive to sell, uh, people buying things have an incentive to get the price down and like where you end up meeting at that optimization point is going to benefit one party more than the other. <laughs> and it's super difficult for any business to like margins are just such a bizarre concept to me. Um, and so like, that's the first time that I really was able to experience like margins for myself hmm. because, you know, as, as a salesperson, you're kind of like, Oh, I want to maximize that. Um, and, but the optimization point for the person I'm selling the car to is like way lower <laughs> than like my optimization point. So meeting in the middle is so difficult. Um, so that was like a big lesson. And then the second lesson was I was working from, you know, 8am in the morning till often like 10 or 11 at night and just had, I was just on the lot all day and I, uh, I learned quickly that that is just not sustainable, um, hmm. in terms of just being a person. So I think like I got a lot of good lessons around work-life balance and kind of like who I want to be as a person. Um, because I, you know, you, you stop liking yourself when you, when you work that many hours. Um, so that, that was a good lesson too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The negotiation point that you mentioned, like this is pretty much you listen every time in a Shark Tank episode that, hey, the best deals are where we both are a little bit uncomfortable uh, because it's neither your way nor my way. Nobody feels like, you know, we have been ripped off or something like that. So that's cool. Yeah. Like I can imagine car sales is like more difficult over there. But all right. So let's move to content creation. So you have been creating content for a long time, right? Like you wrote a, you wrote a book in third grade, The Little Penguin. Oh, oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah I, I did write the little penguin back in third grade uh yeah that so i've always been really <laughs> relatively introspective i think and uh when you sort of spend a lot of time alone when you're little you do things like write books about penguins or i guess little kids who aren't alone do that too uh but yeah so I wrote a, wrote a book called the little penguin and it was like a whole series uh i would write probably one book a year i really enjoyed that one book um, a year okay Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you know, they're like little kid books. So yeah. It's like 10 pages of like Penguin went in the sea and met up with his seal friend. Uh, but yeah, uh, I read a lot when I was little. Um, so like, it was, it's just always been something that I've done. It's just create things and that that's just been like a hobby forever. So, yeah. That's cool. So when did you think that, okay, this is something you love and you went deep into it with your entire fintech knowledge? Uh, yeah, I mean, in college, like having the blog was super important to me. Like that thing was, I was writing for Seeking Alpha, which is a uh, financial news website. And that was like such a big deal to write for them and to get published on that site. And so that's kind of when I was like, oh, this is super fun. Um, and I was a tutor in college. That's how I made my money. Uh, and so there's always been a desire for education, like to educate people, to help people, and then also to kind of have things out there on the internet. And the way that I thought about my blog in college was like a living portfolio. So I was coming from a non-target school and trying to get into, you know, high finance and it was difficult, but because of my blog, it helped a lot because I, you know, companies could if they took a chance, uh, could go and check that out and say, Oh, like she does kind of know what she's talking about. Um, so that was helpful from just like a character development, uh, perspective in terms of like how I grew. And then now it's much more of just like, there's so many things that I've had the privilege to study and to learn about and just helping other people understand their role as like an economic entity in this very confusing and big system that we all exist in. 
is so important to me. And so I, I just have the immense privilege to, to do that right now. And so I try to take that very seriously and hopefully do a really good job. Hopefully. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And when did you get on TikTok? Uh, what was that experience like? Like when did you first go viral on TikTok? Yeah. So I was still at Capital Group, which was the firm that I joined after college when I started my TikTok and I was doing stuff on like science videos. Um, so I, I did a lot of like, like a lot of data analysis when I wasn't able to write about finance. I still kept up my blog when I was at Capital Group. So I did a lot of data analysis. So I would just talk about like science stuff on my TikTok. Um, and then when the GameStop stuff happened back in 2021, I made a video explaining that and that did pretty well. Um, and then I just started doing, I left Capital Group, so I was no longer under compliance. And so I started making daily market updates and just green screen, like the market news behind me and just like pointing to stuff and explaining. Um, you know, I came up with terms with my audience. So like we called green markets photosynthesizing and just had like a bunch of fun just talking about markets and was at a company called On Deck at the time. Um, and just like kept on making TikToks. And then I started making skits because it's like just insane stuff was happening. And I was like, oh, like this, this should be fun <laughs> to make a skit about. And so I made a skit about Arquigos. I made a skit about that deli that's like worth $500 million or something absurd. Um, and just posted those on Twitter and made a skit about Elon Musk. And, and they did really well. And people were so supportive. Um, and all the while I was running my blog and my YouTube channel and my podcast. And so the TikToks were really just like top of funnel, but I, they're super fun to make. Like I, I really enjoy that. Um, so it was like a stroke of luck and then a stroke of the markets being absurd <laughs> that enabled me to, to do this. Yeah. Right. I know like once you go sort of viral, like I went viral on LinkedIn once and I went viral mm -hmm. on YouTube once. So after that, like, you know, you suddenly start changing your strategy that, okay, now let's go all in. If this is working, let's do more of it. Did that happen for you or were you like always consistent before it? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I, my editing skills have developed, like, I mean, if you go back to some of my old videos, it's just painful to watch yeah. uh, with the cuts and stuff. But um, yeah, I would say like the concepts have remained relatively the same. Like I'm explaining the markets, but I definitely have a lot more confidence in front of the camera. I have a lot more confidence in the things that I'm saying. The scripts are tighter. Um, so yeah, I would say it's evolved, but like the general thesis that I have is, is still the same, which is nice. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. And what do you think about the entire TikTok platform? Like TikTok has really evolved from like, you know, initially just music to dance. And now there's so many education TikToks being made. Like uh, for me, I was in India. TikTok was banned over there. So I didn't get to yeah. see the evolution. But what have you seen as more and more influencers are coming with educational content on TikTok? Like what is the, uh, yeah, what are you seeing over here? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of older people look down at TikTok because they hmm. like as you described they're like oh kids are just dancing on there and I think that really does a disservice to the platform like there's a whole other thing to talk about with bike dance and China right. and like all that stuff um and the data usage that they do with like everything but in terms of the use of the platform as a tool of distribution like I think it's so powerful like because the algorithm is so creepily good it curates to what people want. Um, and so I think that a lot of people use it as a way to talk about things that they care about. And I think that's like one of the most beautiful things that humans do is like, here's, I like, I follow this one person who's like very passionate about space and every video, they're just like freaking out about space. And so other people who might have not cared about space now, because of the algorithm in that virality are able to watch space videos. And so 
it's really like such a powerful knowledge dissemination tool and it definitely can be detrimental, right? Like if you're scrolling through TikTok all day and not engaging your brain, like that's not great. But if you're using it as a tool to learn more about the world, which like you can cure your algorithm to help you with that, I think it's immensely powerful. And like TikTok has allowed for a lot of community action too. <laughs> um, like this isn't a great example, right? But it is, it is an example. But the TikTokers were able to report somebody to the IRS and get them oh, wow. to pay taxes, right? Um, okay. And so like that kind of stuff, <laughs> right? And so, but like there's more than that too. Like there's collective action that happens because of it. And I think it just helps people feel less alone because there is a loneliness epidemic that's happening, right? Like we're surrounded by information, but we feel completely overwhelmed. And TikTok contributes to that too. But you're also able to find community like in the comment section on tiktok i would say more people like the comments than the videos like you will go to the mm. comments and listen to the video right? right and you're able to like engage in this sort of discourse and people will fight and stuff but you're also able to see other people talking about things that you might care about and i think that that's like a really powerful tool of connection in a time where you know the past two years have just been not that um so i think it, right. it really helps people you know right I think that's so cool, right? Like the entire comment section one. Um, I think this is pretty much on YouTube as well. Like I would never do that. I, if I'm on YouTube and I'm watching a YouTube video, I would just keep on watching it. And I don't know, like who are these people who actually go and comment on a video? But once YouTube changed that positioning of comments, now it's no more after the recommended videos, it's before it. Like it's right below the subscribe uh, strip. Now, I would do that. I would actually read it. And there are some funny, like, you know, memes or some really yeah. smart, uh, witty uh, comments over there that you want to know that makes you laugh. So I think that's super cool how YouTube is doing it. But with TikTok, how do you, how do you perceive it? Do you, or how do you use it? Do you use it like, Hey, I'm just going to create my content, publish it, get out. Or do you actually spend time in like, you know, uh, I know you engage with your people, you actually put out comments and you reply to them, but do you also curate your algorithm, make sure your consumption is really good on TikTok? How do you look at that? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's like two Kylas on TikTok, right? Uh, there are two Kylas. I have two, two accounts. Um, so like one of the accounts is like my finance account and that page is like just for me to post exactly my finance content um and on there yeah like i'll respond to comments like it's really important to me that people are getting questions answered or are not spreading misinformation in the comment section and so i'll keep a close eye on that but my personal algorithm is definitely not just finance stuff like i have hmm. a lot of interest outside of the space so i, I like I, I really like space uh, for example um i really like science stuff um and then there's like a lot of skits, like a lot of comedy. I love comedy. Um, so a lot of my videos tend to trend towards that. Um, so yeah, mm. I try, I definitely watch TikTok. Um, I don't, maybe like, um, I would say like two or three hours a week, probably. Uh, so not, not a whole lot per se. It's mostly right. market research, right? <laughs> um, right. Like in terms of like watching the TikToks, but uh, yeah, so that's how I, how I use it. Um, and I'm terrified of the algorithm though, in terms of like being yeah. a poster right? Like you, the thing is insane. If you post at the wrong time, um, <laughs> if you don't, you know, include the right captions, you got to censor certain words. Um, that, that's the scary part. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. What about time? I'm right now trying to figure that out. Uh, what is, what have you figured out is the right time to post something on TikTok or Instagram reels so that it actually blows up? Uh, yeah. So TikTok's different than Instagram. Instagram, I feel like I can post whenever and the algorithm isn't as like punishing. So, mm. and I'll post it to my story too. So more people will right. see it then. 
Uh, but with TikTok, I post at 5 p.m. Mountain Time every day, <laughs> every day. And if I miss it by a couple minutes, you can tell a little bit of difference oh, in the man. algorithm. Okay. Yeah, and like I think it's me just being like, eh, conspiracy. Um, right. Because some people can post whenever, and it's t- does totally okay. But the algorithm does reward that consistency, and I leave three comments in the comment section, so that way people okay. don't feel weird commenting. Right. Um, yeah, and if you need, yeah, there's like so many little tips and tricks that you can do to help your friends like boost a video if it's underperforming. Um, but yeah, I post at the same time every day cause I'm terrified of that algorithm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So in the comments, do you like add more to the actual content or if you just randomly write that, Oh, this is so brilliant. This is, this content is great. Kyla is great. Oh, no. Yeah, no, no, no. It's my own account. So like a lot of people right. don't listen to the whole video because attention okay. spans are terrible. Uh, so I'll hmm. just put like a little summary, like, Oh, the market went down today. Snapchat is down 80%. And so that hmm. way, if people like don't want to engage with the whole thing, they can hopefully like, like that comment and then move on. Yeah. Right. Right. And now let's talk about like, you are talking about super advanced concept, like monetary policy, the feds and some basis points. It took me a lot of time to actually research and understand. So thank you for opening my eyes to it. But do you see more and more people who are interested in this or are they just scrolling past? Like what is the feedback you are getting? Uh, do they understand it or do they, are they like, Oh, it's just, it's cool, but I'm going to go, I'm going to scroll up. So there's like two things here. Um, the first thing is that people are definitely like way more interested in the Fed than I think people have ever been because the right. Fed is like um, a household item, inflation as a household item. So my comment section has evolved to the point of like, Kylo, what stock should I buy? To Kylo, like, what's going on with the Fed? And so I've been really impressed with that. And that's been a really joyful process to, <laughs> to kind of see that evolution of people, you know, wanting to learn more about the system versus just wanting to, you know, have easy answers. The bad part about that <laughs> is that there is a lot of conspiracy theories around the Fed, mm. unfortunately. The most popular book about the Fed is the um, the Jekyll Island book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is like probably a little bit misinforming uh, in terms of like how people can think about the Fed. Um, and so you just have a lot of people who are like, it, it's bad, it's terrible. Um, and I think that's just like, like sure, yes, the Fed has made some mistakes, but you can't just decry everything as bad. Like you have to understand why it's bad. And I think a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people kind of end up just sort of screaming into the void because there's a lack of understanding or just a knowledge gap, which is totally mm. understandable because we don't learn anything about the Fed in school. Um, right. And so that's been like a trend that has been troubling is the conspiracy theories in general that have arisen around everything recently. Yeah. Right. And I think the interest has also risen because of the entire conversation around stimulus checks, right? Like how the stimulus checks, because of that inflation is high, like somewhere people are making that relation. Uh, I'm actually seeing a bunch of tweets around that. But what are your thoughts? Like, what is happening over here with regards to inflation, the feds? Uh, Let's get into the technicalities. Sure. Uh, Yeah. I mean, so stimulus checks were more like fiscal policy, right? So the Fed didn't have any control over that. They're more monetary policy. What they did is they created a really easy money environment. So they ended up propping up the bond market. And this was during the pandemic, like the bond market was going to bottom out if they didn't do anything. So they're like, don't worry, we're going to step in. We're going to make sure everything goes okay. Um, But they kind of made sure everything was okay for a little bit too long. And so essentially, if you keep something on the fire for too long, it's probably going to (laughs) burn. And so the economy is kind of in that burn mode now where it's been, you know, cooking and stuff. And, and now we're starting to see the impact of that. But the inflation situation, and I've written about this quite a bit, is just 
a really terrible combination of the pandemic, right? So supply chains, just scarce resources, um, an undersupply of labor, a lack of physical capacity. So, you know, chains just being down for a while. Um, And then you also have, you know, a war, (laughs) a land war in Europe, and that's going to exacerbate like energy and that's going to exacerbate more natural resources. That's going to exacerbate food prices. But then you also have the Fed, which has provided an ample amount of liquidity. So like all this money to everybody, right? And um, that creates really risk on environments. So you see just a lot of bid up in stocks, or you did see a lot of bid up in stocks. You saw just crypto projects that should have never seen the light of day exist. Um, and now the Fed is like, hey, everybody, like we're going to you know, pull back on the fire a little bit. We're going to start pouring water on everything. And the market's freaking out because of that, right? And we're seeing some improvement in inflation metrics like PMI, which is the Purchasing Managers Index. So kind of like how companies are performing with regards to inflation and like their personal inflation metrics, like that's abating a little bit. Um, we saw a huge decrease in home sales today. Uh, so you are seeing a little bit of the impact of the Fed doing what they've done in terms of like trying to ease back on how they've allowed some free flowing money um, by raising interest rates. So that's how they sort of like stemmed all this from happening. Uh, but you just see the market reacting so aggressively to this concept of tightening monetary policy. Um, and of course, the stock market and the economy are two different things. And that can be a little bit difficult, I think, unfortunately, for the Federal Reserve to separate. Uh, and, and they've made it very clear that they're going to like keep on raising rates until inflation goes away. Uh, but the question is, like, if the Fed raises rates, if the Fed pulls back on this liquidity, essentially, like, they can't really make boats go any faster. They can't make this war stop by being like, hey, everybody, monetary policy is going to be contractionary. And so that's really the big problem is if the Fed does pull back, does that actually help the inflation that we're seeing? Like how much of it is actually driven by this potentially excess liquidity or how much of it is just things that are thinging in, in the wrong way? So that's the issue. Yeah. Right. Now, what would you do differently? So let's say you have consumed all this content. Now you are aware about all the situation. What would you do differently now? Like considering that now you understand what's happening around the world. Is it that you will buy less milk, drive around less because the gas prices are high? Or would you change your uh, crypto investment portfolio? Like what, what, what have you done? Uh, yeah, so I don't drive, um, but yeah. gas prices, like if you can drive less, like that's a good thing to help with like the environment and also just like, hmm. you know, not paying as much on gas in terms of portfolio construction. Like I, you see a lot of people going to cash. Um, it's a good time to buy, like, this is of course not financial advice, but like, it's a good time to buy some stocks. I think that if you like really believe in them, like a lot of stuff's on sale right now. Um, so that's a good opportunity for that kind of stuff. Um, in the crypto space, it's probably a good time to allocate to companies that are like building real things. (laughs) Um, and that, that's what I would think about is like companies that you believe in, um, things that you believe in. And like, it's important to have a 10 to 15 year Time frame, right? And that's what venture investors are supposed to have in the private market side. Public markets, you can kind of think about it a little bit similar. Um, so I'm 24, so like I'm not going to worry about these companies until like you know I'm in my late 30s. And the idea is to have a portfolio that will hold on that long. Um, so it's kind of like who do you think is going to be around for for 10 years? Yeah. Right. You mentioned companies in crypto that are building real things. What are some examples? Yeah. Because right now, I think not many people understand what's real, what's not. 
Yeah, I mean, that's like where the whole do your own research thing comes in. Um, you know, like, is there a use case for it? So like L2s, those different things like that, like, what does that actually look like? Alternative uh, layer ones, like, what does that look like? Is it actually useful? Is it able to displace different things? Um, you know, do we need 700 crypto gaming companies? Do you really think that the metaverse is going to be a big trend as soon as uh, it seems as a lot of people think it is? So it's more like that kind of stuff. Um do you think that carbon credits are the future? Like that sort of thing. Like just thinking about, you know, what do you think the future looks like and trying to apply it to your own framework? Yeah. Right. So are you bullish on metaverse? <laughs> uh, okay. Like, I mean, maybe. So I get it. Okay. And I get it. Like I do. Like I think that um, you, when you look at it, it makes sense. It's definitely like mm -hmm. one of those things where everyone's going to be like, "No, I, I'll never use it." But I do see a world where people like might use it. I think in its current state, it's not ready um, for anybody to use it, and I think it's going to have a longer adoption process. And I saw this tweet today that somebody was like, "We're going to have vacations in the metaverse." I don't think that kind of stuff is going to happen <laughs> unless like right. the world collapses. Um, so I think there's definitely use cases for it, but I personally like don't want to spend my day in, in, in the metaverse right now. Like I definitely right. enjoy going outside. And so I think it's just going to be that balance of like, like me and you talking right now on this Zencaster thing. Like, will we have this in the metaverse one day? Probably. But like, will right. we go hang out in the metaverse instead of going to, you know, drinks Never. or coffee with our friend? Probably not. Yeah. That makes sense. So what, how do you think about metaverse right now? Like what is the definition of metaverse in your mind? Because everybody is roaming around with a different definition. I, so a lot of people are giving this argument that, okay, if the largest company in this world literally changed their name, uh, for <laughs> metaverse, uh, or to target towards this metaverse thing, this means that it's real now. It's not about if it's going to happen or not. It's more about when it's going to happen. So I understand that argument, but then it's more about like, you know, how do you actually see metaverse? Because I cannot imagine myself putting on a VR headset. It really hurts my eyes. Uh, even right. just working for three hours straight on my laptop, I just want to break. I just want to go outside, take the sun, stuff like that. So uh, what is the definition? How do you see metaverse right now? Is it more about VR, mobile? Like, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, so like with regards to meta and them changing their name, I think that Zuck is like one of the scariest smartest people <laughs> in the world and he saw the trend and he was like yep this is good and they want to own all that right so i think the metaverse right now is more of like this physical internet kind of thing like that's right. the way that i would think about it so like things that you can do on the internet people are like what if you did this in the metaverse um so that's how i think about it i don't think it's like the physical world online yet like i think the physical internet and the physical world online are two very very different things um so that's what I would say is like, if you want to have a meeting in the metaverse, like sure. But I don't think the benefits of that are any greater than doing a zoom call right now. So I think it's just like a baby. I think it's still really young. I think there's a lot of like user, um, testing that they have to do. And I also think mm -hmm. there's just like this broader trend of people just being very disinterested in that onlineness because of the pandemic and being so online, like if the pandemic hadn't happened, maybe like this would have taken off differently. But right. I think because like we've sort of been stuck inside, um, the idea of people being like, what if you were stuck actually like for real inside your computer um, it is just so unappealing. Yeah. Right. And have you played any of those crypto games out there? Like, have you played Axie Infinity? Um, no, I have not. I checked out okay. the Central Land, uh, but I, yeah, I, I don't, I've never played them, which maybe okay. I should, but 
<laughs> right. What has your experience been with these crypto projects? Like you mentioned Decentraland. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I think there's a lot of good applications for it. With Axie, it was just, you know, the hack was really unfortunate on Ronin. Um, and then what ended up happening was the stratification of users. So you had like these people that were like, what if I controlled other players and took some of their profits and created like this I guess a guild is the right word for it, even though I'm, you know, Yield Games Guild is, is their name. But uh, <laughs> I, like, I think that was unfortunate, right? Um, hmm. So instead of it being like this thing that, and like, sure, like these people were still able to make money underneath these other people, but it became really extractive really quickly and benefited a few centralized stakeholders really quickly. And I think that is just um, like really, really sad. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of good applications for the gaming universe in crypto, like A16Z, you know, just unveiled a $600 million gaming fund. Hmm. So stuff is going to get funded regardless. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like gaming is a huge part of the world right now. Um, so it makes sense that the crypto world would envelop some of that as well. Right. I think they call it Game One Fund. That's a huge fund just for crypto gaming. But let's see what happens out there. Uh, what are you reading right now? What are you interested? What are you? What's what's taking your interest right now? Yeah, I just finished a really big piece on the baby formula crisis and food hmm. scarcity. Um, so that's what I, I spent a lot of time on reading about um, just like this idea of domestic protectionism. So this globalized world that we've gotten really used to, right, where everything is good and everybody kind of gets along or pretends to, what does it look like post that? Um, and, and how can we think about the impact of that? Uh, I'm reading a lot about the Fed. I'm working on a big project around them. I um, love the Fed. <laughs> like probably like the <laughs> number three biggest Fed fan in the world. I think it's really fun. Um, and then, yes, and then doing like some stuff in crypto and trying to sort of wrap my head around that direction and like what's going to happen, you know, if it is in a bear market and sort of the shakeout that could happen um, because of that, the shakeout that's happening in public markets, reading a lot about that, like the decline in ad spend and how everything is mm. like moving so bigly and um, like Snapchat, you know, down 80% from all time highs. It's just absurd. And like taking the whole market down with it. Um, and then reading about like venture capital allocation and trying to understand why they invest the way that they do. Yeah. So that was kind of like a long list of stuff, but uh, I, I read, I mean, I spend, I'm lucky, but in the way that I can sort of spend hmm. probably like 50% of my day just consuming information, which is right. really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So is this your full-time job now? Like where you, I know like on your LinkedIn, you said like, I'm a founder of Bread. What is Bread? Yeah. Uh, Bread is a financial education company. Yeah. Okay. So it is still in build mode. <laughs> um, it, okay. It's me only working on it at the moment. So it's a financial education company. The goal is to hopefully launch it by the end of this year. Um, so that okay. is my my night job. Um, and then content and working with brands and my newsletter and my YouTube channel and my podcast, uh, are all my full-time, full-time job. Yeah. So I'm full-time back in September. Right. Okay. So what is your entire content creation process? Like, how does your day look like? Can we talk about, can we dive into that? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. So I wake up pretty early, um, cause I'm mountain time. So I'm two hours behind East coast. So I like to wake up when I think they're waking up. So I get around <laughs> up around four. Uh, and then I just sort of like check the markets. I read if like there's something I was reading the night before I'll finish that and like take my notes. I have a whole notion page, uh, of just like notes and notes and notes and notes that I, that I send to my audience, um, or have it publicly available. Um, so I do all that. And then I usually have some meetings with like different brands or different, you know, uh, opportunities to talk to different people 
people uh, on their podcasts or different things like that. Um, and then I spend a lot of time researching. So reading, um, talking to different people on Twitter is a form of research, I tell myself. Uh, and then at the end of the day, I make a TikTok video. Um, so around 3 p.m. Mountain Time, I'll start you know collecting research after the market closed. Um, and I'll get ready to film that and I'll film and edit and that's up in about two hours. Uh, and then I usually go to the gym, like I go for a run in the mornings uh, and then I go to the gym in the, in the nighttime, which is a nice little routine in terms of brain break. Um, and then I come back and I read, I'll finish up edits if I'm working on something for a brand. And then I always like during the week am working on my newsletter and uh, I'm always like kind of like writing different things down for the newsletter. So that's like not a big, like I know people like Packy will sit down and just like write something and five hours. Um, me, I kind of do it throughout the week, which is nice. So yeah, it's a lot of writing, a lot of researching, a lot of aggregation, a lot of editing, a lot of editing and a lot of talking. So it's a nice balance. Right. Right. That, that's a good routine. I also set a good routine <laughs> for myself so that like, you know, you can actually stick to it. Otherwise it's, it's all up in the air, but yeah. what do you, how do you think about what to write on? Is it just like you have particular sources that you open up in a day and just start reading and figure out that, okay, this is, looks interesting. Let's dive deeper. Or have you set a set sort of titles or like, you know, topics for yourself that you're only going to write about these? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really just like whatever I find interesting and like kind of what the audience is asking about. So like my DMs are open <laughs> across all platforms. So I get all sorts of different requests or like, you know, questions, look into different things. Um, so like, that's kind of how I think about it. And then if I think something is important, like the baby formula crisis or like what happened with Terra Luna and like that whole situation, I'll write about that too. So like, it does tend to be um, uh, like relative to market news, um, but hopefully like, the takeaways are long-term, but yeah, it's just whatever I think is important. Yeah. So very, very right. qualitative. Yeah, definitely. I, I loved your piece around F around and find out the quadrant. Yeah. Uh, do you have, like, do you think about this, that, Hey, if you're writing, if you're putting so much effort, you should have some theories that you have named that people like, you know, think that, Oh, this theory was named by Kyla. Uh, do you have something like this in your mind? Because I definitely do. Like whenever I'm writing, I'm like, okay, I've written like, let's say 30 or 40 articles. Now let's create a theory that I name it so unique that people are going to think like, okay, it's named by me. Uh, so do you have that thought process in your mind? Yeah, I wrote a piece back in October, which is so long ago now, but uh, called yeah. the theories of interconnectivity, where I kind of talked about like my own theories, like the not enoughness theory, uh, the Sheehan theory, like all that stuff. Um, so I've definitely done things like that. Um, for me, I have taken on more of a role of a synthesizer since the war happened. Mm. Um, it's just kind of like, there's so many voices out there. Most of the time people just need somebody to explain to them what's already going on. And, you know, having me be like, here's my big thought um, is good for like the end of the piece, but I don't want to take up that much space in people's brain right now, if that makes sense. Like I just want to explain things. Um, so like, that's kind of how I think about content right now is like more of an explainer versus like, um, uh, I want to say like a elucidator, but I don't think that's a real word. Um, but like more of somebody who's, who's developing theories. Yeah. Right. And so it's really cool that you went full time into creation and now you're also working with brands. You have figured out a way for yourself. What was your first brand sponsorship like or brand partnership? Like how did you crack that? Can you talk about that? Because right now the, we are living in a creator economy. A lot of people are trying to figure out that, okay, how do I build that creator market fit and then start charging for my services so that I can make it more sustainable as a creator. So what was that first partnership for you like? Yeah, I was super lucky. Like Morning Brew reached out to me 
back when I was like still really tiny on TikTok and they were like, Hey, do you want to make TikToks for us? And I was like, of course. And so that was super lucky. Like I've just been, I've always had, uh, I've been lucky enough to have like inbound, um, where people reach out to me, uh, which is nice. So like morning brew was my first brand deal. And that sort of like, because of their presence helped other people to find me. Um, and so, yeah, that was just really fun. It was just kind of like, they gave me total creative freedom and I made TikToks and, uh, that was that. And I was still working at another company during that time. And so when, when I went full time, I am lucky enough to work with brands like Bankless where, you know, it's very supportive and they're awesome. And, um, yeah, people are just kind of like, go make videos. And that sort of trust is just so nice as a creator that you're able to do, you know, what you love, but also like help other people tell the story of their brand. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it as, uh, you know, partnerships versus like deals. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, I actually had no idea that Morning Brew was your first deal. That's that's really yeah. cool. Like yeah. getting Morning Brew as your first one. Again, they have a huge distribution now. The last person we had on the pod, Ryan, he was an editor at Morning Brew. So we were, okay. we were just diving deep into like early days of Morning Brew. So that was again, super cool. But actually you wrote a piece on Ponzinomics or Pons, whatever, how, how, how you pronounce that. That was super cool. So SBF recently described VC as a Ponzi scheme, which was super yeah. funny. Uh, what are your thoughts on the VC industry? You also mentioned that you were reading about how the VC industry works. Yeah. Um, eh, like, so like, this is one of those things where I'm like, I don't know if I have enough information to like fully form an opinion. Cause I've never worked at a VC firm. I have friends that are VCs. Um, but like, do I know enough to like fully fledge an opinion? I have, I follow them on Twitter, but like right now, and like, I understand that there's different funds that invest in different things, but I'm, a little bit questioning like why they do what they do and why they invest in the things that they invest in at scale. Um, you know, like Lux Fund does an incredible job investing in companies that are changing the world um, in like science, biotech, et cetera. And I think that, you know, I wrote about this in my last piece, but like there has to be, when we have emergency times like we've had for the past two years, I think it's important to, as a capital allocator, to take that into consideration and think about like, okay, the world is kind of falling apart. Like maybe we don't need to develop a metaverse fund right now, but I understand like why they would. Right. Um, so it's like one of those things where it's like, I get that the exit multiples on, you know, biotech companies are X percent lower than a metaverse company potentially because we're in the age of big tech. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's like something I just uh, pay attention to. I think other people kind of have a gripe with it as, as well, but you know, we all kind of understand it cause it's business at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, that's what I say. And like how SBF was describing VC is that essentially like money, 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 like LPs give money, the VCs go deploy it. And what does that actually mean? <laughs> uh, it, it's a little bit confusing. So I think that's what he was talking about. Yeah. He has a lot of really interesting takes on the world. Yeah. Right. I know, when I read this, I can recall that I found a really good presentation by a general partner at A16Z. So he mentioned a really cool cycle of how these new protocols, how they work. So first of all, you design a really good protocol. If investors, capitalists who believe in that, they will put money in it. So money comes first. Then the miners who would be incentivized to be a part of this platform and mine for you, they are incentivized to come next. Then comes the people who want to build on top of your protocol. And then finally, it's the audience when they finally, when your entire protocol finally has some good applications or good products. And then the cycle keeps going or the flywheel keeps going. So it's interesting, like, you know, over here, definitely money comes first. And like, you know, you sort of have to increase value by putting in more value or putting in more capital. Uh, 
But yeah, it could be, it's very similar to how Ponzi scheme works. So that's why it is dangerous. Yeah. I also read one thing, which where you mentioned that you believe that after a point, everybody's going to go like, I want physical wealth, not paper wealth. So let's talk about that. I think you call it web four, right? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, that's like me borrowing from other people in terms of like that physical wealth aspect. But yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people were very paper rich during the market and they were kind of like, oh, I'm doing great. Uh, but it turns out, you know, half of that was stock-based compensation or, you know, wealth from their home or their market portfolio. And so I just think that you're going to want to have yeah, people um, or people are going to want to have like more tangible things that they represent their investments or represent their wealth. And like, you would think that you would see some of that, but like Rolexes did really well, but you're starting to see that value begin to decline. So I don't know quite what that would look like, but on a, like a nation scale, so like nation states, like commodities are going to be super important. Um, so who has access to oil, who has access to different resources. And I think that kind of stuff where it's like, okay, we've built all this stuff out in the metaverse. We've done all these things with crypto, but common denominator wise, we still need oil and Unfortunately, we still need water. We still need fertilizer. And if you're able to have access to those things, which um, have been normally very historically easy to access, and, and I think some of that is dissipating a little bit, you're going to be the, the king of the land. Um, so I think that kind of stuff is going to begin to take shape where it, previously it was digital real estate, but now it's more physical real estate and having access to those actual like core things that we need. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I think, yeah, we are going into that zone because uh, also like right now it's so hard. Like once you teach everyone that, okay, this is how you buy crypto, this is how you use MetaMask, stuff like that. This There's still a huge risk of your, uh, of your positions being hacked because people don't know how to use these cold wallets and people don't know how to keep it secure, how to remember the seed phrase. So there's definitely a huge risk over here for everyone that, hey, even though this sounds good, decentralized and stuff like that, but there is a huge risk around how do we keep it secure. Um, but yeah, maybe we'll go to a place where we all want paper wealth. Uh, mm. Now, let's talk about Elon and Twitter. What are your thoughts? Do you think this deal is going to go down? Mm. I'm so tired of this conversation uh, because it, you know it's it's gone on for so long, um, and not even that long, I guess. But just like it's been so unnecessarily you know dramatic in terms of how he has treated it so i mean I, matt levine has written really excellent articles about it but i think that tesla's stock price has been just like the guy has lost a lot of wealth recently and i think for him like you know twitter at 54 dollars might have been a good deal a few weeks ago but no no longer is it such a good looking deal so i think that kind of stuff like the incentives are not as aligned as they were um it seems like he is sort of like shifting course towards doing something else. Like, I don't think he's as interested as he was in buying Twitter. It's kind of old news at this point. Um, will the deal still go through? Like, maybe, probably, sure. Uh, he had a bunch of financing lined up, or he has a bunch of financing lined up. And if he can get more equity partners on it versus him having to like take out big loans against Tesla and put up so much of his own capital, like, I mean, I don't know why he wouldn't buy it. Um, yeah, so I think for him, it's just kind of... For funsies. <laughs> um, and I know that might make me unpopular with the Elon fans out there. But yeah, I think for him, um, it's a site that he uses. It's a huge marketing component for Tesla. I got dragged on some by some comments on TikTok when I said that on TikTok, but like Tesla is marketed on Twitter.com by Elon Musk. And if I was him, I would, you know, that's a fair marketing budget, I guess, like $40 billion. Why not? And so I think that's like a you know something 
that you got to keep in mind is uh guy's going to market his product as much as he can. So, um, but will he pay this overvalued price? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. He definitely got a lot of attention for that $1 billion or $2 billion. Uh, I know like people, like there are some old people that I know who would never talk about tech, but they're talking about Elon and Twitter. And that's crazy. Uh, like everybody now knows who Elon Musk is, what Twitter is and why he wants to do this. Uh, but anyways, I'm curious. So you grew, you blew up on Twitter, on TikTok. Uh, if you want to share some cheat codes for new creators, what would that be? I don't have any. I wish I did. Um, I mean, I think for me, like I, you know, having videos on a text-based platform is a super big deal when you're thinking about Twitter. Um, and like, not a lot of people make skits about finance. <laughs> um, so, you know, just offer something that's unique and hopefully fun for people to engage with uh, on TikTok. Um just explain things to people like they're people. Uh, you know, I think that's a big part of what my videos, like I'm still a relatively small TikTok creator, but I, you know, I just try to explain stuff. I try to be helpful. Um, so like that's, that's what I would say. And I like, in terms of the whole content creation process, I try to be everywhere. So for people who prefer audio, I have a podcast for people who like to watch YouTube. I have YouTube for people that like to read. I have a newsletter for people that like to watch short form. I'm on Instagram reels. I'm on TikTok. I'm on, um, YouTube shorts. And then of course I'm on, on Twitter. Um, so yeah, just try to be in as many places as, as you can be, um, and be, I guess, authentic around your content if you can, um, and talk about stuff that you care about, you know, like I really like finance and, uh, it's such an honor that people have like given me their time and, and space to, to talk about it. So, um, not to make it about me, but yeah, I would just say like, do what you like and talk about what you like. Perfect. All right. So Kala, this was good. Any last message that you want to drop? Any things that you want to plug in, especially bread? Bread is launching soon. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Bread is, I'll have more information about that if you want to go check out my socials. So I'm on Twitter, um, Instagram and YouTube. My Twitter name is Kyla Scan. Uh, beware the bots. <laughs> There's a lot of people that pretend uh, to be different finance creators or just different people in general and, and try to scam people. So be careful. Um, but yeah, and my newsletter is kyla.substack.com. My personal site is kylascanlin.com. And my DMs are open, as I said, always, always down to help out with questions and stuff, or at least like point you in the right direction if I can. So yeah, um, I appreciate the time. All right, perfect. This was good. Thank you so much.